Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit, for your glory. Amen. Uh, Family life's really messy. You probably don't need me to tell you that. But when it comes to my family, the longer I live, the longer, the more I find out how messy it really is. Skeletons are found in cupboards. Dates and birth certificates don't match. Dark secrets come into the light. Over Christmas, I found out that one member of my extended family was actually sent to prison during the conflict in Northern Ireland during the 1980s for driving the getaway car in a paramilitary raid on a bedding shop. His mother, however, was apparently still proud of him, and I quote, he did it for his country, (laughs) clearly striking a blow for freedom and democracy outside the betting shop. That's only the tip of the iceberg. We've been the center of a cheating scandal in grade 12, committed sacrilege by breaking into a church to steal the offering. I could go on, but you get the point. My family is pretty messed up, but so were most families. And it's no accident that in the New Testament, God routinely refers to the church as the family of God. It's one of the striking things about the New Testament that it's so brutally honest about the problems that beset the people of the Lord Jesus Christ from the very beginning. The Gospels are totally upfront about the disciples' lack of comprehension of what Jesus is talking about most of the time. And the story of the earliest church, whether narrated by Luke and Acts, or mirrored and extended in the New Testament letters is punctuated by conflict, misunderstanding, ego, and downright hostility. The church planting campaigns, which the new communities of Christians spring up across the Mediterranean, are painful, costly, and fraught, not least for Paul. But it's these problems that have given us a large part of the Bible. Take Galatians, for example. Remember, it's very early days for the church of the Lord Jesus. Jesus only died maybe 15 years earlier. Paul and Barnabas have just got back to Antioch in Syria from their first mission trip to Turkey, and already things have gone pear-shaped. As we saw last week, the message of the gospel is being garbled by some people insisting that although becoming a Christian might be a matter of trusting Jesus alone, if you want to grow and find assurance, then you need to get circumcised and keep the Jewish law. When Paul eventually hears this, what can he do? Well, all he can do is write straight away. Now, remember that in the first century, both people and information traveled slowly. Paul or one of the other apostles would come, show up for a bit, and then go. Now, keeping in touch was a complicated process. It took a lot of time and energy to dispatch a person to find, say, Paul, and then come back with an answer to your questions. At this point in the story of the church, it really isn't easy working out what or whom to believe. If Paul goes and another preacher shows up sounding a bit different, it's kind of tricky. As you listen, you say, was that the same as what Paul said? Did Paul say anything about that? What they say sounds kind of sensible, but... It's hard to remember, does that fit with what we've already heard? 
when Paul spoke, was he wrong? What should we believe? You can't check with the New Testament because there is no New Testament. There might be a copy of the Old Testament in the local synagogue, but relationships with the local Jews probably meant it wasn't really on to ask for a quick peek to clear up some issues. Now add to that the very human problem that often we find it easier to believe the person who's in the room with us at that moment than the one who left a couple of months ago. And you start to understand the messiness of the world of Galatians. Because there's no doubt that when Paul was there, people were persuaded by this previously unknown, passionate, compelling Jewish Christian from Tarsus just down the road in the next province. But when others showed up troubling the church, distorting the gospel, suddenly no one was quite so sure. Especially because they were very definitely denigrating Paul himself. What was the issue with Paul? Timothy George sums up the issues really helpfully like this in the Christian Standard Commentary. If, as seems likely, these agitators had close ties to Jerusalem Christianity, they may well have represented themselves as true ambassadors of the mother church while depicting Paul as a renegade evangelist, one whose authority was wholly derived and subordinate to the Jerusalem apostles. Paul, they perhaps claimed, had totally distorted the message of these great church leaders while they offered a pure replication of it. So when word drifted south along the trade routes to Paul in Antioch, he knew he needed to act swiftly for the sake of these churches. And he writes to defend himself. Now Paul's defensiveness in this chapter may make us feel a bit uncomfortable. It doesn't feel a bit doesn't feel quite right. Aren't we supposed to make it about the gospel rather than us? Well, the short answer to that is yes, we are. But remember, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles and we aren't. The progress of the gospel at this crucial moment really does depend on Paul. If the Galatians don't listen to him as he passes on the message of Jesus, it will be catastrophic for every church in the region. If they don't listen to Paul, they lose the gospel because they're not getting it anywhere else. That's why he goes to such great lengths in this passage to show that his message isn't a messed up version of the real thing. That there is no authorized Jerusalem version of the gospel which is different to what he preached. And that shutting down the access of Gentiles to the gospel is an aberration. So this morning we're looking at the first part of Paul's defense of his unique ministry at this crucial moment. Now as we'll see much of what he says just can't be picked up and applied to life at QTC this week. Please do not try to correct your lecturers this week by saying, but that's not what Jesus said to me on the road to Damascus. However, behind Paul's defense are some enduring theological principles that really should shape all we do and say, this week, this year, whether here in college or as we serve Jesus for the rest of our lives. 
So look with me as Paul starts his defense in verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from anyone, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's language here is emphatic. When Paul says, I want you to know, (laughs) he really wants us to know. He's about to unpack a key principle. He insists that the message he preaches is a fresh announcement from God himself. It's of a completely different order to the endless back and forth of his rabbinical training. It wasn't dreamt up or compiled or composed by people. It was revealed. The phrase, a revelation of Jesus Christ, probably implies that Jesus is both the source and the content of the revelation. Jesus revealed himself to Paul. You see, Paul's gospel consists of the announcement that Jesus is risen from the dead, that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God, yet is here with his people, that Jesus will come again to judge all people, but that Jesus has opened the door for all people, including Gentiles, to be accepted by God through faith. And he got it all from the risen Jesus on the Damascus road. It was revealed to him. And that's the first basic principle that undergirds his defense. It's God alone who opens our eyes to the truth through Jesus. Although obviously Paul's direct encounter with the risen Jesus on the tarmac between Jerusalem and Damascus is apostolically unique. It's here that Paul grasps the fact that it's God and God alone who reveals the truth to us and enables us to grasp it. Now, Jesus himself already laid out this principle in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 11, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Paul clearly took this to heart and it shaped his ministry and his relationships. It's crystal clear when he tells the Ephesians that he's what he's praying for them. I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering in my, you and my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you'll know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints and so on. He says it again, actually, in chapter three. I bow my knees before the Father that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height and length and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This week at QTC, We can listen and read and think and write and talk. In fact, we we must. It's the way God works through these ordinary means. But we can't forget that our greatest need is for God to open the eyes of our hearts. For God himself to give us the strength and ability to grasp more and more of the extravagant scope of his love. 
We're here to press on towards being filled with all the fullness of God. We really mustn't settle for anything less, both for ourselves and for those whom we love and serve. Honestly, I can think of few, if any, truths that it's more important to make sure are lodged firmly and deeply in our minds. Because understanding that God alone reveals himself to people through the gospel is the most effective vaccination against pride in ministry. You can't bring people to new life through the gospel and neither can I. I don't know if you've noticed, but clear explanation alone never brought anyone into the kingdom. But being convinced that God alone reveals himself to people through the gospel is also a strong inoculation against pragmatism. Because when we're actually thoroughly convinced that it's only God who can open the eyes of our hearts, then we will be so wary of starting to sound like or even to think that any of our systems, models, plans, or approaches come with a guarantee of success. And it's also the most persuasive reason not to go through the motions this week. You are not here to learn how to decline Greek verbs, although you may have to. Or learn how Genesis flows. Although that's a good thing. Together we have the privilege of asking a God who is poised to reveal himself to us. To open our eyes to his grace and beauty and truth. It's God who opens our eyes. That takes us to the second plank in Paul's defense in verses 13 and 14. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now Paul actually says this because the idea that he'd somehow misunderstood or distorted what the apostles taught about keeping the Jewish law is quite frankly crazy. He was so deeply opposed to the emergence of the Jesus movement that he tried to completely wipe it out. The idea of a crucified, cursed Messiah who tried to undermine the Torah by, for example, declaring all things clean, coupled with his followers' insistence on including uncircumcised Gentiles in their community, was more than enough to drive Paul to violence like a first century version of Phineas in Numbers 25, or Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, or Mattathias in 1 Maccabees who killed a fellow Jew who was going to make a pagan sacrifice right at the altar. Paul was there to defend tradition. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, of all people, I wasn't going to flip on this one without something really dramatic happening. I wasn't going to get the wrong end of the stick on keeping the law or letting Gentiles in. Not unless something utterly dramatic happened to change my mind. 
Paul says, what you're saying about me makes no sense at all. I didn't get it wrong. Now, I think it's also clear that Paul refers to his past like this. Because the reality of his former life made a nonsense of what they were saying, but also because it reveals something beautifully significant. Paul's able to speak like this about his past because he knows that God sets us free from our own past. It's easy to miss the force of what Paul says in verse 13. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He tried to wipe out the church. He hurt Christians. He was complicit in at least one death, and who knows how many more. This is no small thing to own up to. And yet Paul can say it. He says it once, more than once in the New Testament. Remember what he says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1? Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. When Paul says, I was in the front row of sinners, he actually means it. (laughs) I tried to wipe out the church of God. And yet Paul can speak openly about it. Fight for Paul, his shameful past even serves as a dark backdrop which makes God's grace shine all the brighter. It's as if he's echoing Psalm 36. You see, the glorious thing is that for us as people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the past shapes us. (laughs) But in Christ, it doesn't define us. Now, I'm pretty confident that none of us has single-handedly tried to strangle the work of the gospel at birth. Or if you have been doing that, you didn't own up to it in your interview. But I'm equally sure that many of us carry around all kinds of deep embarrassment and guilt and regrets and shame for the ways in which we've treated people or acted or reacted or come up short, or failed, or messed up in our past. It does not have to be so. God doesn't want us to carry that around with us. He wants to bring us gently to the point where we can speak about our past sin in a way which is shaped and softened and redefined by the fact that we have been shown mercy in Christ. Mercy which extends to every conceivable sin. Where we can look at our own past and see how it simply shows up the brightness and beauty of grace in the present. Yes, the consequences of our actions may remain. 
We may carry a sense of sadness this side of the new creation, but there is no need for us to be crippled or hamstrung or weighed down by it. Because our God sets us free from the past. The way in which Paul speaks about his past, even as he refutes those who are accusing him of mangling the gospel, makes that clear. Which takes us to the next strand of his defense in verse 15. In the earliest days of the church, especially before the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, there is no bigger issue than what to do about Gentiles. See, behind the insistence that the way to grow and find assurance involved essentially becoming Jewish, was a discomfort with the idea that the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus had brought in an era where everybody gets to hear the gospel. Whether this reluctance is theological or simply racist, for Paul, it is no place in the church. For him, it really is a matter of first importance. He pulls no punches in verses 15 and 16. But when he had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, that's in me, literally, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The language is borrowed from Jeremiah 1 and echoes Isaiah 49. As Paul insists that God had been at work since before he was born to bring him to the point where he's preaching Christ among the Gentiles. This is the goal of God's revelation in Christ, um, in him. That's Doug Moo. Or to him, Tom Schreiner. Or through him, Timothy George, aren't prepositions great things? So take your pick. But the main point is clear. Neither Paul nor the Galatians can give up on preaching Christ to the Gentiles because Paul made it completely clear, Christ made it completely clear to Paul from the beginning that this was to be not only his ministry, but the shared goal of the church of the Lord Jesus. In Acts 9 and 22 and 26, this is front and center and it should be for us. See, this is one place where there's a simple correspondence between Paul's mission and ours. Paul's role is to ensure that the work of our God in our world expands from the one nation of Israel, God's original covenant people, to everyone who calls on the name of Christ. Ours is to carry on that mission wherever we find ourselves. The gospel is to be preached to everyone. One of my favorite songs of all time is an 18th century hymn by Charles Wesley. Contains these words. Oh, that the world might taste and see the riches of his grace. The arms of love that compass me would all mankind embrace. His only righteousness I show. His saving truth proclaim. Tis all my business here below to cry, behold the lamb. And then this, happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name. Preach him to all and cry in death, behold, behold the lamb. See, that's the third principle undergirding this passage that we've got to take seriously. God is the God of all nations. If we ever slip into thinking that our, our mission is limited to white, tertiary-educated European Australians, then we've completely lost our grip on the gospel. 
If our vision is shrunk to our demographic, our suburb, our city, even our nation, then something is badly wrong. For God is the God of all nations and he sends us to all nations. And Paul says, look, there's no misunderstanding on this. I got it straight from Jesus. So for us, being concerned of the gospel, both north and south of the river is not an option. Being concerned for the progress of the gospel among tradies and uni students is not an option. Being concerned for the progress of the gospel in Logan and Anala as well as Belimba and Hawthorne is not an option. Being concerned even for the cause of the gospel in New South Wales and in the Northern Territory and the rest of Australia is not an option. Being concerned for the progress of the gospel in India and Taiwan and the Philippines and everywhere else is not an option. Global mission isn't for special interest groups. It's for all of us. If we haven't got that, then we haven't got our God. Paul's absolutely adamant about that, and we should be too. Now, at this point, Paul shifts to a rather unusual travel itinerary, which is made up mostly of places he didn't visit. But he continues to ram on the point that his gospel is the true gospel, verses 16 to 17. Paul says, after he was converted, I didn't immediately go anywhere, consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Um, Calvin says at this point, um, this is perhaps the sentence in the gospel with least theological significance. But fear not, it does have some. His point for the Galatian readers is a relatively simple one. His version of the gospel isn't a misremembered take on the official line coming out of Jerusalem because he didn't get his gospel from Jerusalem. He didn't go anywhere near there for years. Instead, he went off grid for three years to what is now Syria, Damascus, and then modern-day Jordan, uh, Arabia. Now, there are all kinds of theories as to where he went and what he did including having a very long quiet time and going to visit Mount Sinai. But given the fact that Luke tells us in Acts 9 that Paul basically started preaching as soon as he got to Damascus, I think it's better to follow Martin Luther on this one. It's silly to ask what Paul did in Arabia. What else would he have done but preach Christ? So where did he go? Presumably cities like Bosra and Petra which were at the heart of the thriving Nabataean kingdom. Paul kept preaching the gospel, as presumably he did in Tarsus when he went back home for years before Barnabas comes looking for him. But as he refutes the charge that his message is a messed up second-hand version of the official Jerusalem line, Paul actually gives us a vivid example of a key principle we'd do well to take hold of. God works at his own pace in his own way. After his conversion, Paul went off and preached Christ a long way from anywhere for three years. Then he went home for 10 years and presumably served Jesus there. Neither Luke nor Paul himself tell us much more than that, but they're both quite happy with the fact that this is the way God ordered things. Seems that for almost 13 years, the apostles' ministry wasn't particularly strategic. For the first three, we don't even know where he was. For the next 10, he was at home, 
And we don't really know much about what he did or how effective it was. But Paul seems completely content with the fact that he was exactly where God wanted him to be. A few days ago, an excellent article appeared on the Gospel Coalition Australia website written by a guy called Josh Mall, who's an assistant pastor in Sydney. It's entitled, Ministry Pathways and the Importance of Non-Linear Leadership. You should take a look at it. Here's a little extract. He says, there's a massive problem with ministry pathways. And that is, to put it simply, there are people in them. (laughs) Real living people. Sometimes what they need is not the next step along a linear pathway, but love and encouragement as they hold steady or even go backwards. If we only think of ministry in terms of progress and growth, we reduce the full personhood of people. They become a bit too much like objects. God often yanks someone off our structured pathway and put them in another one we hadn't thought of. It might be another location, another church, or in some life situation that fits God's logic but not ours. At other times, people take themselves off a good discipleship pathway by making mistakes or going backwards. Perhaps consequences of past decisions catch up with them. Or for reasons known only to God, he may have chosen a very painful pathway for someone. A hospital visit that lasts for years, a redundancy, a child born with disability. Our linear structured pathways can suddenly be interrupted. People fall off the plans we have for them. But if they're God's children, he knows what he's doing. And they will be moving towards the new growth that he has planned. It just may not be on our pathway. You may have followed every step of a preferred pathway to get here. You may not even have known there was such a thing as a pathway. But you know what? It's okay. God works at his own pace in his own way, shaping us in precisely the way that we need to be shaped for what he has for us to do. I think there's real comfort and delight to be found in that. Paul's defense continues in verses 18 to 20. Not only did Paul not travel to Jerusalem for three years after after he became a Christian, when he did eventually go, he didn't have an official meeting with the hierarchy. He hung out with Peter for 15 days, briefly met James, he thinks, and that was it. Verse 18, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, remained with him 15 days, saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Paul, in saying that Paul was preaching a messed up version of Jerusalem truth, they'd missed the point. They'd misunderstood how God was working. They'd misunderstood the nature of the message of the gospel. They'd missed the fact that Paul was a, a witness of the resurrected Jesus. And so was an apostle that had been given exactly the same message as Peter and the rest. He didn't need to submit his draft to them for approval. Uh, the language he uses is of getting to know Peter. C.H. Dodd, the famous, famous British commentator of the early 20th century, once wryly commented, we may assume that they didn't spend all their time talking about the weather or whether or not they had Taylor Swift tickets. Okay, well, sorry, I added that bit. But that didn't mean that Paul was there for Peter's imprimatur. They were getting to know each other as brothers and fellow servants of the Lord Jesus. Of course, they must have talked about their experiences of the Lord Jesus, but out of the conviction that they were partners in the gospel. 
and that neither of neither them nor any of the others owned that gospel. See, the way in which Paul writes here makes it obvious that, that the work of the kingdom is not personality driven. We're all servants of something bigger. God's kingdom is bigger than any of us. That's the underlying principle here. And you see that coming out all over the place in Paul's writings. Just a couple of years later, he writes this to the church of Corinth. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Each one of you says, I follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ. (laughs) Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Later, he says, what's Apollos? What's Paul's servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. For we are God's fellow workers. You're God's feed, God's building. Didn't take long for the early Christians to start fighting to establish a pecking order, a hierarchy to pull rank. Started before Jesus even made it to Jerusalem. As they're walking to Capernaum, Jesus says, what were you discussing on the road? Sensibly, they kept silent, for on the way they'd argued with each other about who was the greatest. Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. We're part of God's upside down kingdom. I suspect the Galatians hadn't really got that at all. But lest we be too hard on them, I'm not sure we always value servant-heartedness as servant-heartedness as we should either. But it is this servant-heartedness which reveals whether we're striving to build God's kingdom or our own. Which takes us to the last piece of Paul's defense for today in verses 21 to 24. Then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia. It's a single Roman province which Paul called home. Essentially, it's northern Syria and southern Turkey. That was home for Paul. For these years, it was his focus. He he goes back here after the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. He seemed quite happy serving his local churches until Barnabas came to get him. I love what he says in verse 22. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now the preaching the, preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorify God because of me. He says, the only interaction I had with the Judean churches is that I was a cause of encouragement because I'd stopped trying to destroy them and was serving alongside them a few hundred k's to the north. He didn't seek their approval. He didn't study under them. He just gave them reason to praise God. Something beautifully understated about this, isn't it? It's very God-centered. The Apostle Paul doesn't seem to care about who has heard of him and who hasn't. Or whether he's asked to speak at conferences in Judea or anywhere else. His only overwhelming, all-consuming concern is that God is glorified. That's the final principle underlying this section. 
God's glory is the ultimate goal. The so-called Westminster divines were a bunch of reformed pastor theologians of various stripes from England and Wales, joined by a delegation of Presbyterians from Scotland who met for six years from 1643. They produced a pile of documents, including the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the doctrinal standard of this college, as well as two catechisms, the shorter and the larger. This is the first question and answer from the larger. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. You might like to argue with me, but I reckon that's just about the most helpful sentence ever written outside scripture. And it captures what Paul's saying here beautifully. The, the ultimate goal for him isn't gaining acceptance or defending reputation. It's that our God, Father, Son, and Spirit be glorified in the lives and the churches of Galatia. That goal eclipses everything. It puts all our achievements, all our agenda, all our ambitions into perspective. When Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, seeing the king in all his beauty changed everything. It reordered his priorities, redirected his affections, completely reconfigured the way he looked at the world. That's why Paul could say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. See, this is what it means to live for God's glory. Over the years, I confess, I've often thought, let's work through Galatians next. Only to turn to the opening couple of chapters and go, oh yeah. It starts with that long defense of Paul's ministry. What about Philippians or Ephesians or Thessalonians or 2 Corinthians instead? But I'm glad we're spending these weeks here in this part of God's word. Because for people like us, these verses are, I think, unexpectedly helpful. Of course, our situation is very different to that of Paul. No matter how good week one was for you, it can't quite match up to seeing the risen Jesus face to face. Nor are any of us caught up in a dogfight for the future of the cause of the gospel across the world. But as we watch Paul in the throes of a crucial struggle to make sure that the church of God that he tried to destroy in its infancy doesn't then lose its way completely in its toddler years, it's so helpful to see these convictions that shaped him. That only God can open blind eyes. That God sets us free from the past. That our God's the God of all nations. That God works at his pace in his way. That his kingdom is bigger than all of us. And that his glory is the ultimate goal. And all this and more was impressed on him in the most dramatic way when Paul came face to face with Jesus Christ, the risen king. I think this chapter actually makes it so clear that Paul is a man for whom the Lord Jesus is everything. Jesus is the blazing center of his life and his ministry. And Paul longs, he invites us to follow in his steps in encountering this Jesus through the gospel. In a commentary on Galatians published in 1604, shortly after his death, 
The English Puritan William Perkins wrote these words, and with this we're finished. Servants of the gospel must learn Christ as Paul learned him. They may not content themselves with that teaching which they find in schools. I think he means theological colleges. But they may proceed further to a real learning of Christ. And that is to believe in the Son of God, to die to their sins by the virtue of his death and to live to God by the virtue of his life. This is a real and lively learning of Christ. They that must convert others should be effectually converted. John in Revelation must first eat the book and then prophesy. They that would be servants of the gospel must first themselves eat the book of God. And this book is eaten when they're not only in their minds enlightened, but when their hearts are mortified and brought in subjection to the word of Christ. Unless Christ be thus learned spiritually and really, we shall speak the word of God as people speak of riddles and as priests in former times said their matins when they hardly knew what they said. Again, students in every faculty are with Paul to learn Christ. Such persons desire and love good learning. But this is the best learning of all, to learn to know and acknowledge Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's not settle for anything less. Let's pray together. Loving Father, by the power of your spirit, work the gospel deeper into our hearts and minds that we might see and savor and serve Christ wholeheartedly that you might be glorified through your son in the power of the spirit in whose name we pray amen